Welcome, welcome, welcome. How's everybody doing? Hope you are doing well. My name is Andrew Kuhn with Focus Compounding on air live with Jeff Gannon. Jeff, how's it going today? It's going very well, Andrew. How's it going with you? It's going great. We hope it's going great with everybody else as well. If this is the first time you're tuning in with us, thank you so much for joining us. Be sure to check out all of our content that we push out into the investing universe. The best way to do that is to follow me on X, formerly known as Twitter, at at Focus Compound. All the information is in the description below. If you're interested in getting access to investment write-ups and blog posts from Jeff Gannon, going all the way back to 2005, uh, you can get access to that by going to focuscompound.com. Uh, well over a million words written, all at our website, focuscompound.com, and you can uh, search whatever topic is on your mind, and I promise you, as long as it relates to investing, there's probably a blog post somewhere about it, uh, all for free at focuscompounding.com. So in today's podcast, Jeff, we are going to talk about Les Schwab and the book Pride in Performance, Keep It Going. This is a book that you had sent to me, talked a little bit about it on our last podcast, at least uh, the fact that I had it. Um, and it's an awesome book, right? So people that are watching on the screen right now, you can see you could buy it for $230 on Amazon. I believe before you sent this to me, I believe you could not buy it. It was out of stock uh, during that time. Uh, there were only like 20,000 copies written of this book. Uh, so... This is a, you know, this is a piece of treasure that I'm holding in my hand right now. Um, never going to sell it, going to hold it forever. Uh, okay. But again, like, I'm pretty sure, Jeff, when we just looked for this book like a month ago, you couldn't buy a copy, I don't think. I think it said it was sold out and now there's a copy for sale. I, I, yeah. I could be wrong in that. We've been looking at some older books, but there literally is only no. 20,000 books in circulation. So pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, no, it was out of stock before. Um, and we're not, are you selling a copy doing a podcast? Is, is this no, a pump I, and dump? I, are you, I is I that sent... your copy for 230 bucks <laughs> for 230? <laughs> no, I've bought and sold some of these. Like we've said before, um, the, uh, distant force and memoirs, the Ben Graham memoirs. I've done that, kept some copies for myself and, and as personal copies. And then otherwise I'll sometimes buy and sell them or give them to people or something. Yeah. Um, but that's when we're talking about, like, I noticed that a book that's normally, impossible to get is 30 to $50 or something. And that'll happen sometimes. Um, it's kind of like a, an illiquid stock, right? That never splits the shares or anything. You know, the higher the share price, the higher the value. Sometimes the harder it is to come across supply, right? It, it's worse than that. It's like a Bitcoin or something because they're burning it off because what happens is it goes to libraries and things that don't know what they have over time. So it's just the book's old too. Yeah. So it's 30 some years old or whatever. And so over time, people don't know what they have. And unless they look up online what they have, it's sort of like the early days of eBay and stuff, um, it, you, to check what it's worth, then they wouldn't know to keep it. So, I mean, literally, I don't know, that copy, I remember what's in it and stuff um, because we talked about that. But some of them, you get books that are $200 and stuff, and they just have printed on them, like discard from a library and stuff. And now they're worth a couple hundred dollars. Uh-huh. What's the most expensive book you've ever come across? come across a yeah. lot more than this yeah so like what, no i mean a couple thousand no no first edition of things that people really collect and stuff are extremely valuable uh -huh. so yeah 
Um, I mean, they've been printing books for hundreds of years, so there's some things that are very early that are very valuable. Yeah, that the people who are into books, like in business books, things I don't know that there's that many that are all that expensive. Um, but yeah, we're getting up to the things you could get a stock certificate with Rockefeller signature on it or something for probably not much different than this, probably a few hundred dollars because, you know, they signed so many of those kinds of things and there's enough of them left. It just depends. Yeah. Makes me um, think about I, like all the libraries that are holding, you know, valuable books that they don't even realize that they're holding. Like what are the yeah, odds that there are some that just have like very expensive books and they don't even know it got to be pretty high. Yeah. And I think as you can see in the similar items that may ship from close to you, probably Munger influenced this because, you know, the contents of this book are very simple. The author of this book did not have much of a formal education or anything. And yet we have here people who buy this book also buy, um, I can't read that from here, but is that the Herbert Simon book? It's something like that. Um, and then you've got the Andy Grove book. You've got, uh, you know, uh, they, those look like Charlie Munger type recommendations and stuff. Things from PhDs and all that, which is not the Les Schwab book, you know? Uh-huh. Yeah. No, it's, uh, so I'm looking right now, John D. Rockefeller signed stock certificate at auction. Um, I've, I'm seeing different prices. It looks like this okay. one last sold for $4,226. I'd see how much. Well, that might be shares. a, he might be signing the front of it and stuff. If it was a, one that he just had to sign cause he owned the stock and stuff on the back. It's, it's less than a thousand sometimes. Yeah. Well, maybe yeah. not. Uh, yeah. But well, if you got 10 years ago or something, it was, yeah. Can. Jeff, you gotta bring those yeah. out. Cause these things are starting to get bit up a little bit. Five grand yeah. right there. I have an Activision one, and Activision doesn't exist anymore. But that's not that impressive. It's computerized, whatever printout. But you know, it was from early Activision. Whenever they IPO'd and stuff, they had a, someone got a stock certificate, and I have it. Uh huh. So Les Schwab, let's talk about him. Very interesting guy. You are right. Charlie Munger has talked about, and I think Buffett as well. But um, I don't know if someone asked a question about compensation schemes or how to incentivize yeah. employees or managers at one of the annual meetings. And Munger basically said, read Les Schwab and that you'll learn more from him than you could from any, uh, you know, compensation consultant. And mm -hmm. I love this guy. Definitely a new found hero of mine, you know, <laughs> just kind of even reading his earlier life. I mean, when you talk about people that, you know, started life at home, you know, home plate, mm -hmm. he started life like not even in the field. I mean, literally like in the parking lot across the street at the 7-Eleven. And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I mean that coming from a point of uh, admiring how far he came, right? Like he grew up in, I think he was born in 1929. So in a lumber camp. Similar yeah. era in a logging camp. Yeah. I had to Google mm -hmm. what that was. I didn't even know what that was. Mm -hmm. And um, no running water, no toilets, no electricity. I mean, this dude literally... I don't know if he was in middle school or high school. He had a newspaper route. Most mm -hmm. people that were on the same route or, you know, uh, same company or whatever, different routes. It was like nine to 10 mile a day job, right? And most people would ride their bikes. He didn't have a bike. He didn't know how to ride a bike. So he freaking ran nine mm -hmm. to 10 miles a day. And um, I think, you know, he was very big on like pride and that his upbringing wasn't going to bring him down. His father was a drunk, 
yeah. he described his dad as being a great guy other than when he would drink. Mm -hmm. um, his father passed away. And then his mother, I don't know who passed away first. I think his dad died first. And then his mom passed away like a day before his 16th birthday. I mean, objectively looking at his life on paper, you just would say, gosh, like he just did not have any early advantages. I think he went to high school or where he went to high school or middle school. They had to take some sort of standardized test to see okay. if they would pass. And he said like everyone in the school, everyone meaning like four or five people, how many people were there there, failed. So from mm -hmm. a point of like education, not there, um, upbringing, extremely tough, extreme poverty, uh, and he made it, right? So that's something that to me was just incredible. And just reading the earlier parts of the book, just his attitude that he was projecting uh, from the book, basically saying life is tough, life is hard, what are you going to do? Uh, but also just being willing to do anything and, and do it really damn well. Um, you knew this guy was just going to kill it, you know? Uh, so very interesting guy. What he is most known for, obviously, are his tire shops. However, mm -hmm. I think the investing world and how this came on our radar is the compensation schemes that he came yeah. up with for his employees to incentivize them. Uh, so do you want to explain that? And then we could go back and forth on how that came to be. Yeah. So the one, the book this reminded me the most of probably was Made in America. Um, so it's basically like a biography thing, but it's like a, both a personal business biography and a corporate biography in that he tries out different things. Some of them, if you read between the lines and stuff, didn't work amazingly. Like he had as many failures as hits probably in the early stores and stuff and probably didn't know why exactly. And sometimes it turns out later, he probably figures out, oh, it's the incentives and the right people and all that. But at the time, he's just opening up a bunch of stores. Some are doing well and some aren't. And so he had to come up with these different compensation schemes, basically, to make sure that the that he could go off to open more stores. This reminded me a lot of Sam Walton that way. Wants to open more stores. So that means you have to leave behind someone to run the stores that you have open. And then the faster you want to do that, the faster he needs to start replacing it with people and stuff. And so... A lot of the book, I think probably the interest for Munger and stuff, is moving to like the systems of how you do incentives and things on a larger scale versus when he first did it where you're running a place yourself and then the first few hires where it can be based on your understanding of the people. you got to come up with systems for profit sharing, basically, is what we're talking about. And he has very elaborate ways of doing that. But we've talked a little bit in the past about like um, Radio Shack Tandy. Um, they had a model that was based on uh, store manager, assistant manager sort of thing and paying a percentage of EBIT in those cases and stuff to them. Um, there's other ones. People know franchise ones. I think we've talked a little bit on this podcast about Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A technically doesn't have it organized as like a franchise thing, but has a very similar sort of scheme to try to make it make people think as if they're um, owners the same way you would with a franchise, but maybe a little bit more ability to rein in people if they're they clash with the culture and stuff and it doesn't work out mm -hmm. yeah so how did he do that right basically shared half of the profits that the tire store generated with that individual had certain trust set up for like a long-term compensation uh mm -hmm. scheme something that i thought was interesting too is the certain systems he put in place i mean that's the word that keeps coming up as we're going through um 
you know, the books on like The Outsiders. I mean, obviously we're going to record today, which will also be uploaded on John Malone um, and then Les Schwab. It's just getting the right systems in place and then just carrying those out, um, you know, incredibly well. Uh, one thing that Les Schwab did was if you were ever discharged or fired for anything that he would classify as being dishonest, you would forfeit your share of uh, the trust um, yes. that you were entitled they couldn't to. Keep do they couldn't keep doing that for legal reasons later. Yeah. Which is surprising and stuff to people might, that might surprise people, but basically that, that was the plan originally. And that's what they did originally later. That gives too much power to the employer to abuse that and stuff. And you did result in lots of court cases and stuff. If you did that. So now, you know, companies don't do that, but they try to do things similar to it. Years later, we talk about clawbacks and stuff after the Enron scandals and all that, but those kinds of ideas. Yeah. And so he put a lot of it into a compared to the amount that employees at the earnings levels usually make, they put a huge amount into a trust, which they then used for different things. But basically that deferred a huge amount of compensation compared to what people are used to getting at lower levels. And we've talked about that because you can imagine some of the places he talks about, he's in some of it's in a pretty rural part of Oregon and stuff early on in the story and everything. If you pay people as much as that, so imagine like a car mart or something, I mean, totally different part of the country, but that's the kind of thing we're talking about with the managers of these first stores and the size of the things and stuff. Um, if you pay them a huge amount, the best performing ones, and this is what happened in this company, made more than the people at corporate, you know? And so they actually, you have a danger that they'll make too much money and obviously decide, well, I'm going to start my own competing thing because even if I make less money, at least I get to run my own show completely. I have enough money that... I'm not going to starve and stuff now. So deferring things and all that um, was part of the plan instead of just paying it all out in big cash bonuses. Um, and that's a big part. There haven't been books written about cap cities and stuff, but we talked about limping on water and all that. You get that if you read stories about the cap cities things, how much was put into stock options and things that they had a sense of year to year that they were participating in the enterprise. And so they would be less likely to leave it. And also the autonomy and the same thing here with um, that. We didn't talk about like the tire industry. This is a very, very pure sales job. And that's why I wanted to send you the book on Saul price, price smart. Um, that's a really good story. Not enough people know it. And it's the model that Costco copied. And they're quite open about that. This, you know, Senegal at Costco would say, you know, that's where they took everything. Just like Southwest was very open about they took all of their stuff from an earlier airline that almost no one knows about now. Um, but they're very similar things to me in that they had a lot to do with people and the systems and stuff because they know that this was a sort of controlled distribution by the tire makers, but it was a very commodity type thing in terms of what people probably wanted it to be and how to buy it. But they limited distribution and stuff. And so it was a very closed system where it wasn't open to a lot of retail competition. And he brought in some of that competition. But in doing that, it became a very pure sales job. And so it makes sense, like you're saying about the newspaper routes and all that. Someone from different backgrounds and stuff coming into this industry really turned it into more of a um, sales to the customer kind of thing instead of what it was before, which is really pleasing your supplier. Because um, what we mean is like you'd be hooked up with one of the different suppliers 
your Goodyear, your Michelin or whatever, and like having the right selection from them, getting the right prices, which are opaque. You can't see what the prices are that they're giving you versus what they're selling to other people and stuff. Really managing those reputation, those uh, relationships and stuff was more important than the customer facing part of it was the supplier stuff. And he put, flipped that on its head, which reminded me of price smart and Costco and stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So a few things that they did, I mean, I guess it's customary today. If you go into a tire shop, you know, you walk in, it's super clean. You see a bunch of tires on display, waxed, nice and shiny. Um, that's a concept that basically he pioneered, right? Before it was like super dirty. You, you know, walk in and there's just, you know, um, dirt and just not a pleasant sales experience. Um, whereas at the Les Schwab Tire Center, I mean, the tires would have to be waxed every single day and just look perfectly nice on display to sell to customers. Uh, one thing that was funny is he would write to corporate and basically tell people at corporate, like, you're at this job, but the most important people in our company are the uh, people on the front line at the actual stores. And, you know, he was very upfront and honest about that uh, to them that, hey, look, like, these people are the most important people and we have to do whatever we can to basically support and and be there for them, Uh, which is obviously pretty interesting because normally, you know, in the uh, corporate world, as you rise up or whatever, I think things get, uh, there's a lot more bureaucracy. Things happen a lot slower. The people that make the decisions are at the top where he basically inverted and flipped this on his head, whereas like he gave the autonomy, he let the people on the front line make the decisions that we're going to ultimately push the company forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, now today, like if you work at the headquarters of a bank, you're even people who don't make a lot of decisions stuff are going to make more than people at bank branches. If you work at the headquarters of Cinemark, you make more than the people running a Cinemark and stuff often, even though, you know, that your job is very inward facing dealing with other people in your company and it's not as clear how you drive the profits and everything. Um, mm-hmm. Do you think yeah. Buffett tried buying? I mean, I've heard different accounts. I don't think the book actually said that. He didn't okay. ever write about that Buffett did unless I missed that. But I know he said KKR did. He did say that there was a, uh investor that buys uh, private businesses and likes to keep management intact, had reached out to him, and he was a nice fellow. But I don't know if that was Buffett that uh, did that. But he did speak very highly of KKR. I will say that. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I mean, people should read the KKR books we talked about, especially the new financial capitalists, not just the, what's the other one, Merchants of Debt or something. Um, KKR was very, um, in the early days and stuff, KKR was very focused on being, on adopting certain things that like professional service firms do. And so networking and doing good things for management, making management feel very safe about them. You know, they talk about the bootstrapping, all that stuff. Like KKR was in that business from the early days. There were other companies in the 50s and so other people who would say, I can have you take out all the money in this business using debt, not equity. But they were more fly-by-night people who did not have the same reputation and stuff. So KKR did a lot to make the sellers feel good about it. That's not always covered as much in the story of KKR. But that's a really important part of it because we talked about container store like that one wasn't sold to Buffett and it wasn't sold because of price. But the only reason why Buffett would have been considered is that his reputation, and everything KKR had a good reputation with the managements that they bought from and keeping them on and also making them feel like it was a legitimate thing that went beyond just providing some capital to um, buy people out and everything. Um, uh, something that I thought was interesting, some earlier promotional stuff that he did. So 
uh, they would change the tires for free for women. Uh, mm -hmm. If you had a flat tire at your house, you could call them and they'll just come to your house and fix it. You know, also no banned. questions asked. That that ended up getting because banned. that's yep. sexual discrimination. Yeah, <laughs> yep. Um, as you can see right here on the screen, free beef now. So I think it was uh, was it like uh, it wasn't always right. It was like in February or something like that. They would give out. That was a very uh, smart one. Yeah, because beef, you, you want to explain that. Yeah, so free beef now is because so there's two things happening here. So they serve commercial type things as well as uh, consumer things, and so some of the more most expensive tires and things would be people using them for different things, but especially for like um, ranch stuff in their area. You know, it's not super specialized tires that you would use in other sorts of things. Branches buy tires that are pretty similar. So um, this would be to sell to consumers the idea that you have the free beef and stuff, but it also played to the fact that you were working with other potential customers of yours to ranchers and stuff in that community. And so they play up that aspect of it too. Um, and it plays up the local aspect of it by doing that. Yeah, it reminded me a little bit that way of um, Piggly Wiggly story which is mostly covered in the John Brooks uh, book and stuff. But I mentioned that one before that guy wrote a lot of his own copy for advertising things and played to regional things um, the same way with those um, stores. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. This guy had a pretty tough life too. So his son passed mm -hmm. away um, yeah. in a car accident and Les actually wrote in the book that he doesn't know if he did it on purpose or not. I think he hit the back of like a log, log truck and mm -hmm. he said he could have done it because he was incredibly depressed. Um, and then the book doesn't hit on it, but his daughter actually passes away at like 51 years old from cancer as well before Les dies. So losing two children. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, he's, I don't know. You just, you look at some of these guys that have, uh, I don't know, he just lived a very virtuous life. It was not an easy life. Uh, by any stretch of the imagination. He started, like I said, in the parking lot of the baseball field, uh, worked his way up. Something that you know I thought was interesting was throughout the book, it's pretty clear that he wants to keep the family or the, the company within the family's name. Uh, and yeah. within the family, I think you're four or five generations down the line now. And they actually recently just sold uh, in 2020, mm -hmm. I believe, uh, for you know billions of dollars. Um, he had a couple partners early on in the beginning. They had a dispute. He was able to actually buy them out. And then he was the sole owner of the company. And uh, if you learn what he bought them out for, it was like, I don't know, $100,000 or $200,000. I mean, it was not billions of dollars that the company would ultimately, uh, you know, come to be worth. Yeah, I think he says with that, that, you know, that was basically a personality dispute and disputes over things besides just money. Uh, it was, if he had known then at the time how good a deal he was getting, it, he would have felt differently. But that's not what he thought at the time. Um, you know, it was more of a falling out that was happening there. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting when you read different books and you take away different things. Something that I thought was smart that he did outside of the compensation schemes was when he would lease a building, he always put in there a clause that he had the option to buy the building 10 years uh, into the mm -hmm. future, five or 10 years. I thought that was pretty shrewd because he basically said, look, if my business is super successful yes. and this lease comes up, I don't want to be basically, you know, negotiating with you, uh, raising my rent uh, because the business has become so successful. So he would never do a deal where he didn't have the option to buy the building itself, yeah. uh, which I thought was interesting. And he said he walked away from a bunch of deals like that, you know, um, yeah. it's just creating this system, this framework and really sticking to it. Uh, it's just the biggest takeaway I'm having from all these people we are studying. Well, it's a lot of common sense about understanding people's um, 
incentives, their reasons for why they'd be doing this, looking at it from the other perspective. So that's a huge problem with ARC restaurants, right? That's what we've talked about before with that, that it's very hard for them even to maintain the same level of sales unless they can sign up places that are the same. When they get an Atlantic City hotel that doesn't do that well that they put a restaurant in and it declines, then their sales decline. But if they get a Las Vegas one, then either you're going to have to put in more money or you're going to have to sign the lease at much higher or whatever because you don't have control over that. Obviously, lots of things now do similar ones. You know, when you put in a, uh, you know, I, um, we talked about supermarkets and stuff. When you do supermarket things, often the lease is 20 years or something or two terms of that or something, and you have options to buy it at various points, and that's the only way you would do it. Sometimes they put in clauses, for supermarkets, bookstores, things like that, that um, reduces rent on other things if you were to leave or something. So that also gives an incentive for them to renew if you're successful and bringing in a lot of traffic. But um, yeah, you pick a great location and then potentially you lose it if the store is successful. That's always a risk at those things. And it's something that reading a 10K or something someone might overlook. But if you have someone running the business that way, they're thinking about it all the time. Mm -hmm. uh, what are some other takeaways? So obviously the, um, the profit sharing that he set up for the employees, um, the decentralized nature of the company, he let them do what they had to do. Um, yeah. What are some other thoughts or takeaways from you? I mean, those are the main ones from me. Uh, just a very common sense approach to putting in the right systems, incentivizing the right people, and then giving them the autonomy to do what they have to do. That was my biggest takeaway from the book. Yeah. I would say the same thing. I mean, most everybody's not going to get a chance to read this book. And what they're really getting at is sort of the Charlie Munger stuff. The same reason that, you know, I mean, Charlie Munger talked a, bit, a little bit about like NCR, National Cash Register, and what a good thing it was, the cash register being invented um, was such a service to people who worked in those places because it gave them the, it, it, it discouraged them from stealing, basically. And so that's an understanding of human nature that a lot of people wouldn't have, that it's not necessarily a bad thing to put in place controls, financial controls at higher levels and things um, that we're used to today and very simple controls like the cash register because otherwise you're corrupting um, your workers by not doing that. And that's an understanding of it, both of the dark side of those things and of the positive things from like we talked about with the profit sharing and all of that, but understanding what really drives people's behavior because they understand that with your landlord that you're going to make this into a successful store and then he's going to use that to go to the next person and say, look how successful this store is. You should rent this instead for a higher price. Um, you know, so having that simple understanding of it. But he probably had that because he got started out um, not by going to business school and stuff and by basically doing the same job that these people would do later. So by starting from the bottom that way, then he knew what um, to replicate across and what he would want in their position and treat them that way. Remember, a lot of people who are running companies now... You know, they didn't start up, if you're running a chain of tire stores, you didn't start up by running a tire store yourself or something. That's why it reminds me a lot of Made in America and just the differences over time of Walmart today versus Walmart with Sam Walton and stuff. The differences here would be the same thing. It is very much a one-man thing and companies do change a lot after their founder is gone that way. Um, and a lot of it is the background of what they had. The personality, sure, but also the background. I don't know if, if they'd gone to business school and joined another company at corporate, they would have these same ideas. I think these ideas came from the background of what they did in the early years. Yeah, and it worked. They just did mm -hmm. a lot of repeating what worked, right? Yeah, and they were lucky in that this, you know, this was the right time. That's true yeah. for any of these ideas too. It was the right time because a generation later, a lot of people would already be doing some stuff along these ways. 
because um, the the retail aspect of the tire industry would have been well established by then. These really smart ideas, when they match up, help. Like, you know, if you had the Southwest idea today, not as useful as if you had it 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. Got it. Cool. Well, I want to thank everybody so much for tuning in with the both of us on the Focus Compounding Podcast. Uh, be sure to go and hit that bid. Amazon.com, Les Schwab, Pride in Performance. We'll check this again next week and see if uh, somebody I, did that. But I'm telling you, a couple of weeks ago, there were no copies. Now it says there's two used copies for 230 bucks. Yeah, I'm but not sure that we, can, <laughs> that we can recommend it at $230. But yeah, no, probably not worth it. It's a good that. story, and you can find the story elsewhere. Um, the book is just the story. I wouldn't say that there's a lot more in the book except the story that you could probably find by other people summarizing it somewhere on the internet, probably. I don't know. I haven't looked around to see what people have written about it. And I felt like I was reading just a bunch of blog posts. I mean, that's kind of what it was, right? A lot of bulletins and whatever. I mean, it was kind of, it's very much uh, not like your typical book, I'll say. And I think anyone that reads that will uh, agree with that, you know? He probably didn't read a ton of books or learn how to write books that way. I mean, we talked about this with like, um, where I've said, you know, this book was ghostwritten by someone else with their help here and stuff. That's not the case here. I mean, you you're getting told what information he thinks would be useful for you to know, but he's obviously not setting out from it in the understanding of what a book is supposed to look like. And so it's a very unusual book for that way. Um, it's basically trying to explain what he did and what his philosophy was and all that by telling a story, but it is not someone who thought, Oh, I've always loved books and I want to write a book or something. It's that's not it at all. Yeah. Yeah. He said he wrote it on his 40 year old typewriter. Uh, and then says, if you're not interested in business, this book will bore you. And if I were you, I wouldn't waste my time reading it. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, with that, we will, uh, end the podcast. So, uh, thank you so much to everybody for tuning in. Be sure to hit that subscribe button, wherever you are listening or watching us here today. Um, if you're interested in learning about our money management services, you can reach out to me at Andrew at focuscompound.com or go to Focus Compounding and click that Invest With Us tab uh, to get more information on that. I want to thank everyone for all the support, and we will see you in the next podcast. Take care.